Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where we're so grateful every day that you listen, that you engage, that you send us questions, you read our stories, you attend our VIP club uh, events tonight. If you haven't joined yet and you want to join the uh, Just the News VIP club, $5 a month, $45 a year, you get no ads on your newsletters, no ads on your website. Uh, when you log in, you'll be the first to get our new app. And most importantly, you get a chance every month to spend time with just the news personalities like myself and tonight, Daniel Payne, the great reporter who did so much of our COVID reporting. Uh, really important discussions. We answer your questions. It's a chance to let our hair down a little bit, uh, take away some of the formalities and sit on an incredible platform called Run the World. It's a little event platform that we love being on. And we just learn from each other. You ask a question, you tell me something, I tell you something. Daniel Payne comes in. We're going to have some big guests coming in on the future. What an enormous opportunity. If you haven't had a chance, it's five bucks a month. It's less than a McDonald's Big Mac. Get in there, join it. We would love to have you. Every dollar you give to it goes to support journalists like Daniel Payne or Susan Keating, or so many of the other great uh, reporters that Justin News has at the table. Cheryl Atkinson from time to time does some great work. Her daughter is here as well. Uh, and uh, almost every day uh, we're trying to break news, great your video, give you transparency. And tonight that event is there. All right, we've got a special guest today. His name is Mark Dubowitz. He is, I believe, one of the premier experts on foreign policy particularly of all places on the Middle East. He has uh, really been a trusted voice in the community for a long time as the head of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, China, Israel, Middle East, uh, Russia. You go somewhere in the world, they have an expert. And Mark is really, as the chief executive, the uber expert of this incredible organization. So we're going to talk Iran today. There is a lot of education. When I talk to some of our readers and our listeners, there's some doubts about what went on. Did the JCPOA make a difference? Did Iran fully comply with it? A lot of people think, hey, all right, Trump canceled it. I agree with that. But at least Iran complied with the JCPOA, the Obama nuclear deal. You got to listen 
You got to listen to what Mark says today. We're going to educate you with facts. We're not going to change your mind. You're going to make up your mind. You're smarter than me. We're going to give you some very important facts about what really went on with the JCPOA, what Israel is really saying to us in America today, what is going on in places like Saudi Arabia, where they're beginning a nuclear arms race because of the JCPOA, because of the Iran deal, because of the the approach of appeasement that Obama and Biden seem to have embraced on one of our worst enemies and the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. We're going to answer questions with facts. Mark is a very cerebral, fact-driven guy, certainly has a point of view, but he really is a good arbiter of facts and information. And we're going to answer some of those important questions that I think a lot of you have. I get them in the email box. I get them on Twitter. There is some important questions, so we're going to answer them. Now, before we do that, I just, a lot of people this morning were asking me, what was my take on the Biden speech last night? And, you know, I thought from a delivery perspective, and I think a lot of the people I interviewed, because it's more importantly, no, you don't care what I think. A lot of the people that I interviewed last night thought performance-wise, it was pretty good for Biden. Biden sometimes a little ham-handed, a little awkward. Uh, He had sort of a low-key, chill version of himself. And, you know, the theatrics of it were good. and, And, you know, it met expectations for performance. Then you have to strip away the Hollywood production, the Biden delivery, from what he was really saying. And and the most smart people I've talked to over the last few days have said, this is, this has been a cataclysmic week in America when it comes to contrast. And I go, what do you mean by that? He said, well, just think about what happened. Did you pay attention on Monday when the Census Bureau put out the reapportionment figures? How many states lose congressional seats? How many gain congressional seats? Yeah, of course I paid attention. Yeah, a lot of blue states lost, a lot of red states won. All right, like five or six net change. And then they go, well, what states lost them of the blue ones? Was it the small government blue ones or the big government blue ones? Well, they're the big government blue ones. Okay, that's really interesting. Then what does that say? If people just voted with their moving truck and their feet and their cars by fleeing big state, big tax, big regulation, big government states, and President Biden just gave a big government's going to solve everything speech last night, isn't there a disconnect here? And son of a gun, those guys are really smart. They're right. The best people I've talked to say, listen, take the delivery aside, which Joe Biden deserves a good credit for. It was good delivery, decent speech. People enjoyed it. You may not like him. Some people found it boring. It clearly was low key, low energy. Uh, But, you know, it had sort of a humility and a fun Joe Biden style that, you know, when you take away the politics, Joe Biden makes a lot of friends with Republicans because he's a jovial guy. Uh, Now, the flip side of that is what he was saying. The style may have been designed to mask some of the uh, disconnects between his approach, four trillion more, four trillion more in U.S. spending on top of the normal budget, with all the people that just left California, all the people that just left New York or Illinois, all of these big suffocating government states with big budgets and bloated deficits, lots of regulation. You know, there's a reason why Elon Musk left California. There's a reason why many of the iconic companies that were in California when Ronald Reagan in its heyday are packing up and leaving. There's a reason why everyday Americans are leaving because if taxes go up and property taxes go up, uh, property values, get it gets more expensive to live, cost of living is. And if you're at the gas tank and you have 30 cents more a gallon, let's say, to pay in one state versus another on taxes or on income, 
that's 30% less you have to decide on bread. Maybe you only fill up your tank 30%. Maybe you only buy a small loaf of bread instead of a big loaf of bread. Maybe you do without coffee or dessert for a week because you just can't afford it because it keeps cutting into my budget. This con- this conflict that Americans are rejecting big government just as Joe Biden is proposing the biggest government expansion ever. This is not a small thing. Listen, say what you want. Joe Biden, he's gone big. He's gone big. And the question for you and me and every other American is, is bigger government better given all that we've experienced at the FBI, at the IRS, at the um, uh, all of the alphabet soup agencies where every day, every week, we've got a golden uh, horseshoe award to an egregious example of waste. Do we want more of that? More of our dollars going to? Because listen, if they tax the wealthy and they tax more of the companies, do you really think the companies say, you know what? We don't want to pass that on to the consumers. We're going to pass, we're going to eat it ourselves. We Wall Street guys, we're just going to take a smaller salary. There's no evidence they've ever done that. They're going to pass it on to you and me. And it's going to show up in the grocery bill, the gas bill, the next new car you buy, whatever it is that you got to engage in in the life, your cell phone. Uh, yeah, you can tax the rich but it trickles down. Anyone who doesn't believe it trickles down doesn't understand. And let me give you one example that was announced in the last week. Coca-Cola says that it expects one full year into the Biden presidency, so next year, 2022, that prices will be going up for its commodities, the things it uses to make Coca-Cola and plastic and bottles. And so it's raising the prices now, a year before they inherit it, they're punishing you already. They're already going to raise the prices now to prepare for next year's costs. Now, who do they think is raising those costs? They're preparing for the outcome of the Biden agenda. They're seeing the reports of inflation. They're seeing the reports of increased taxes. If you had any doubt that Coca-Cola was going to say, you know, I love our Coke drinker. We're not going to pass this along. <laughs> you just got your answer. Coke rose your, raised your prices this year to pay for what they expect is going to happen under the Biden presidency next year. And that's going on everywhere. Gas prices are going up. We can go on. But we have to be honest with the American people. Factually, tax increases do get passed down. Business leaders can't just magically absorb another 10%. It's got to come from somewhere. Sometimes it comes by cutting jobs in salaries, sometimes it comes by raising prices. Those are your only two options. You either got to grow income to cover it or cut costs. When you cut costs, you cut humans. It doesn't mean a winning formula for everyday Americans. Consider that very important thing. That is the reporting I did in the aftermath of the Joe Biden speech last night. I think it gives you some fact points to consider. You're going to make up your own mind. I don't want to make it up for you. You're too smart. You don't need me for that. But I'll give you a few facts and thoughts and interviews and we're going to do that in just a few seconds with none other than Mark Dubowitz, the chief executive officer of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, one of the very real, serious foreign policy experts that can explain things in real everyday terms, make sense of it. We got Iran, China, the Middle East, so much to talk about right after this commercial break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest. We're going to go to the Middle East today because there's not enough attention about the dynamics going on there right now. They've changed enormously since President Biden came into office. And no better person to bring us there and to educate us and get us up to speed than Mark Dubowitz, who's been the longtime chief executive of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and truly an international expert, particularly in Middle East and China. Mark, it is an honor to have you on the show. John, thanks so much for having me. It is, it is great. And I just happened, I always follow you on Twitter. And, uh, and this morning, uh, one popped up that I thought was really interesting because this is the dynamic we've been writing about last couple of days here at Just the News. Your tweet says 225 members of the House of Representatives support getting rid of the Islamic Republic in Iran. Tell us what happened and what this dynamic that's playing out in Congress is about. Yeah, John, it's a big deal. I mean, Democrats and Republicans actually came together on Iran policy for the first time in probably 10 years uh, in a meaningful way and uh, made it very clear that they want to see the end of the Islamic Republic in Iran, have it consigned to the ash heap of history, as Ronald Reagan said, like all other uh, authoritarian um, regimes. And uh, it's a big deal because, you know, right now in Vienna, you got the Biden administration actually negotiating with that very Islamic Republic right. and poised to give you know, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of sanctions relief to flow into the coffers of the mullahs. So it's a, it's a rebuke, not only to the Islamic Republic, but in a sense, it's an indirect rebuke to the Biden administration to say, you know, stop giving the mullahs money. It's time to bring them down. Yeah. And, you know, Obama often didn't care about the opinion of Congress. He kind of went his own way. But Biden, you know, spent 40 plus years in the institution and this has to send a message to him that the, a foreign policy approach that he is taking is not the popular one in the Congress. And I'll just read from the, the resolution, the, the, the one that it actually calls for America to support a democratic, secular and non-nuclear Republic of Iran. Uh, he wants to negotiate with a uh, theocratic, um, uh, non-secular and pro-nuclear uh, mullah government of Iran that disconnect do you think that this will put some pause in the in the in the path of someone like a tony blinken who's a very thoughtful person do you think that there are uh that this will send a message that hey the country's not with you well john you know you've been in washington a long time i mean hope springs eternal but also hope you know dies in the cynicism of uh of the washington <laughs> policy elites right and uh you know those policy elites right now the biden administration are dead set on going back into the iran nuclear deal that president obama reached in 2015. And as part of going back into the nuclear deal, they're poised to lift the most powerful economic sanctions yeah. that the Trump administration put in place that give the United States leverage. And they're going to take away that leverage. They're going to give uh, the Islamic Republic a reprieve. The, the Islamic Republic is economically on its knees. And instead of using that leverage to put it on its back, they're once again, like Obama did in 2015, they're extending that hand, pulling them back up from the mat and giving them billions of dollars to survive, who knows, another 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. But if Democrats and Republicans want to see Islamic Republic in the ash heap of history, they got to send a message to President Biden, don't rescue the Islamic Republic this time around. 
Yeah, that that's the weird part about this, right? Because uh, I think that when people people don't realize how devastating and uh, directly impactful the Trump sanctions were on Iran, they went from having a cash heap that Obama left them behind in 2016 to literally being squeezed to the point that their own workforces, their truck drivers, were protesting in a country where protesting isn't popular, by the way. And and we're going to take right right at the moment where we potentially could create a form of collapse or certainly compliance. We're going to take it. It seems like we're going to take our foot off the uh, the gas. What can can you even if you disagree with it? Can you explain what the rationale is? What is it that Joe Biden thinks he accomplishes by doing this? Well, the Biden Iran policy is as follows: Go back into the Iran deal, get Iran "quote unquote" back into nuclear compliance because the Iranians have been escalating their nuclear program. Right. Um, take them back into compliance, and then go negotiate, quote-unquote, a longer, stronger, and broader deal. Right? That's the stated policy of, of, of President Biden, and that's the policy that uh, his Iran envoy, Rob Malley, right. is negotiating for in Vienna this week. But the problem, of course, John, as you understand, is, first of all, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was negotiated in 2015, contains with it specific restrictions that go away over time. They sunset regardless of Iranian behavior. So all the Iranians have to do is be patient and wait. Let the clock run, take, right? Yeah, let it run. And they can take patient pathways to nuclear weapons while reaping the benefits of tens, if not hundreds of billions of sanctions relief. Um, so you're, you're going to go back into a deeply flawed nuclear deal that President Trump wisely exited. And then you're going to negotiate a new, longer, stronger, and broader deal where you've given up all your most powerful leverage. It doesn't make much sense. And what I think is going on is that there's a very smart political strategy at work where there's an attempt to try and uh, assure Democrats who oppose the JCPOA, assure some Republicans, maybe try to break the Republican consensus on on Iran, and try to to contain the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, and others who are in Iranian missile range. And the idea here is talk about a longer, stronger, broader deal that will remain a fiction. You know, it'll be a mirage in the desert that uh, thirsty pilgrims, you know, are are eager to satiate. But there's never a deal. And so then do what Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, says that they want to do, which is, quote unquote, put the program back in a box. Of course, an ever expanding box with a nuclear trigger. And in my view is put it back on the back burner so they can deal with other issues, domestic and foreign and basically kick this can down the road, as, as you know, so many in Washington like to do. Appeasement to buy time is essentially how a lot of the intelligence community describes this, right? We're going to appease them now to buy us some time uh, because we don't want a conflict, and uh, that doesn't seem to have worked well. And I, I want to ask this question because you get mixed answers sometimes. But during the time that the JCPOA was in enforcement before Trump withdrew from it, was Iran fully in compliance with the terms of both the UN inspections and other things that were supposed to happen under JCPOA? No, they weren't. I mean, they were denying access to uh, weapons inspectors to right. sites where there was undeclared nuclear material and nuclear equipment. They maintained a archive of detailed blueprints um, to develop nuclear weapons that they were hiding in a warehouse in Tehran, which the Israeli Mossad in a daring operation, seized and took out of the country. And in those, in that archive, it was pretty shocking, and it, I think it shocked Obama administration officials about how detailed these documents were and how much intelligence they didn't know about Iran's weaponization plan. Um, but the other point on, on the JCPOA is, is Iran doesn't have to violate the agreement in order to build up an industrial-sized nuclear program with right. near-zero nuclear breakout 
ultimately advanced centrifuges that it can work on from day one that provided an easier clandestine sneak out. It doesn't have to violate the agreement. In fact, it's foolish to violate the agreement. Just be patient, wait till the restrictions go away. And then shockingly, John, there's nothing in the JCPOA that prohibits Iran from developing weapons-grade uranium. There's, there's no prohibition in the agreement anywhere that I can find that says Iran cannot develop weapon-grade uranium. Now, the answer to that is people say, well, Iran you know, has subject to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which prohibits them to developing nuclear weapons. Right. Well, if we, if we trust Iran's adherence to that treaty, you wouldn't need a nuclear agreement in the first place. So that's the problem. Patient pathways to nuclear weapons, yep. and hundreds of billions of dollars for the mullahs to, uh, to ravage the region and repress their people. The, um, I think so many people don't understand that we're going back to an agreement and offering Iran a chance to do something that the last time we gave it with, by the way, billions of dollars, they cheated even when they got all the great deal that they got from us. And I think that gets lost in the lexicon of a lot of the policymakers, but they weren't good actors when we gave them this deal. And now we want to go back to it. It has to make some people scratch their head and wonder what, what, what we're thinking. Now this morning, uh, I, I go back to a period of my, one of my really early great reporting memories was being at the 1992 Democratic National uh, Convention in, uh, when Bill Clinton was elected. And at that point, the American-Israeli community was really behind uh, Bill Clinton. And, and, you know, all the major uh, Jewish donors were there. And, you know, it was a, a feel that there was a, uh, that he had brought this sort of conservative flavor to uh, de Democrats and that Democrats were going to be uh, good friends of Israel for a long time. And then, of course, all the peace stuff with Arafat was attempted. This morning there was, or maybe in the last 24 hours, I guess it was, uh, the former Israeli ambassador to uh, the United Nations, uh, Danny Danan, made a really stark statement. I don't think I've ever seen an Israeli of this stature say something like this, but he basically said, hey, tell our friends in the United States, you can do what you want. It's your prerogative. You want to go back and do the bad JCOPO again, you can, but you, you're going to choose your path. We in Israel are going to choose our own path to protect our citizens from the, you know, the largest state sponsor of terror. I can't remember a moment, even in the Obama years, where the Israelis were saying, we may have to part ways with our longtime friends in America over this deal. How serious is this dynamic? Look, it's a very serious dynamic. I mean, the Israelis have made clear over the years that they will never allow their enemies to obtain nuclear weapons. And Iran has made clear that, uh, first of all, Iranian leaders, including the Supreme Leader, deny the Holocaust. And they've made it clear that they want to exterminate Israel and bring along, bring upon another Holocaust. So the Israelis take this seriously, and they have struck before. I mean, they, they took out the Iraqi nuclear reactor in uh, 1981, the Osirak reactor. They took out the Syrian um, nuclear reactor in uh, 2000, I think it was seven. Right. Um, Israeli, you know, fighter jets bombed that North Korean um, manufactured Syrian nuclear reactor, which, which thank God they did, because you can imagine in the chaos of what's happened in Syria if uh, jihadists have gotten their hands on, on nuclear material and nuclear weapons. So the Israelis have struck twice before, and they're making it clear they're going to strike again. In fact, they have been striking, John. I mean, you've been following this, right? In daring operations inside Iran, the Mossad has struck against Iran's nuclear infrastructure, taken out advanced centrifuge uh, production facilities, taken out uh, enrichment facilities, taken out the uh, head of Iran's military nuclear program, right. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh worked with uh, the United States to kill Qasem Soleimani and took out al-Qaeda as number two official in the streets of Tehran, a guy who was masquerading as a university professor 
under the protection of Iran. You know, we, we hear from our friends that Iran and al-Qaeda never worked together. Clearly, they work together. So the Israelis have made it clear that it is absolutely existential, and they will do what is necessary uh, to protect their country, even if the United States decides, for whatever reason, that it's going to kick the can down the road uh, and put the issue on the back burner and, and move on to other things. It's... Um... It is really a, a watershed moment in the U.S.-Israeli relation. And I always think America's always going to be with Israel because our, our track record has been pretty darn good. But uh, this administration and the current government and uh, future governments of Israel may part ways in, in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. And what's interesting is that they're beginning to see more support in the Gulf community, the Gulf Arab community, because if you're UAE or if you're Qatar or you're Israel or uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you've seen what Iran's done in Yemen. You've seen what they've done to destabilize the region. And it seems as though there's the potential, particularly with the Abraham Accords, for some of the Gulf Arab states in Israel to collaborate in ways that, boy, five years ago, you'd say, ah, that's not happening in our lifetime. Is that a true dynamic? Do you feel good about uh, the possibility that Israel will find some regional support among people who were at best frenemies and sometimes enemies in the past? It's remarkable what I'm seeing. I mean, I'm seeing that for you know the first time ever, Israelis and Arabs are on the same page. I mean, remember, you know, in our lifetime, John, um, all the Arab-Israeli wars, right? I mean, the bloody wars fought between Israel and uh, and the Arab, and Arab countries sure. are now winding down. And now you've got key Arab countries on the same page with Israel because they recognize, like the Israelis, that the Islamic Republic in Iran represents an existential threat to them as well. Right. So you've got for years, the past few years, you've had quiet collaboration on the intelligence side, um, on the uh, on the military cooperation side. But all of this has come out in the past uh, couple of years as a result of the tremendous work of the previous administration in forging the Abraham Accords. And now you have Emirati, Saudi, Bahraini officials uh, appearing with Israeli officials and saying, we are on the same page with respect to the Iran issue. We all oppose a return to the nuclear deal. We all oppose Iran, this Iran, getting domestic enrichment and reprocessing on its soil. We all oppose um, a U.S. administration that wants to give hundreds of billions of dollars back to the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guard. And they're not just doing this quietly in whispers and conversations that, you know, we've been having with them over the years. They're doing this loudly in public uh, and making it clear that Israel doesn't stand alone in its opposition to the return to the Iran deal. It stands with its new Arab friends. The other thing that long-term security strategic thinkers warn, they don't often don't say it publicly, but in a lot of the private conversations, dinner conversations I've had is they go back to the era of the late 80s and early 90s when India uh, and Pakistan got into a nuclear arms race. And of course, we ended up giving, uh, a pa- Pakistan ended up developing a nuclear weapons program right under our, our noses. And uh, while Iran is trying to do something similar, the potential danger that some of the security experts I look at is that there could be a very secret nuclear arms race that gets launched in the Middle East, which is, hey, if Iran's going to get there and I'm Saudi Arabia or I'm uh, Qatar or I'm UAE, I, I don't know who's going to protect me if they got a nuke. They're going to have a strategic advantage. Is there a danger that the continuation of appeasement to Iran, the approach that Biden wants to take, could launch a secretive nuclear arms race in the Middle East with other countries? John, the Saudis have already come out and said that in, in no uncertain terms. I mean, yeah. former Saudi officials, right, who right. are still very close to uh, the current officials and to the Saudi king and crown prince, right. have made it very clear um, that 
that Saudi Arabia will develop its own nuclear weapons capability if, if Iran does. Um, and there's no way they're going to let their existential enemy develop nu nuclear weapons. And so they've made it clear they've already started um, a quote-unquote civilian nuclear program, um, you know, working with, with the Chinese, That's starting the... to get technology, developing a, f a fuel cycle. And what's sad is that the Emiratis, for example, um, came out and uh, under the Bush administration negotiated a gold standard agreement called the gold standard, which right. is where they agreed that in exchange for U.S. civilian nuclear assistance, they would agree to no domestic enrichment and no reprocessing on the soil. In other words, they would agree to not creating the fissile material on their soil that could be used for nuclear weapons. That was the gold standard. And then what, would we, what did we do? The Obama administration negotiated the Iran standard, yep. where it gave the leading state sponsor of terrorism, who has killed Americans, that exact domestic enrichment and reprocessing so that Iran today can produce the fissile material for nuclear weapons on its soil. So if you're an American ally, you sign up to the gold standard, yeah. no fissile material. If you're an enemy, you get the Iran standard. You get the Iran standard. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, another kind of message that's sending around the world, and not only in the Middle East, but, you know, in, in East Asia and the volatile region of East Asia, where that's exactly the message we're sending to the Taiwanese, to the South Koreans, to the Japanese. And at the end of the day, we, not be, we may not be dependable allies. And if we're not dependable allies, and they're facing off against a nuclear-armed China, you know, they, they too may develop uh, that nuclear weapons capability. And then we've got, you know, a cascade of proliferation, not only in the Middle East, but in, in Northeast Asia. You know, that, you've mentioned the word China a couple times now, and I know beyond your extraordinary Middle East expertise, China's another area where you and your group are so versant and so authoritative. China is exacerbating the situation in, in the Middle East because we keep flip-flopping our policy there, and they could really become malign actors against U.S. interest in a growing way because of the fact of we're losing or, or offending many of our key allies in the region to appease one of our potential uh, enemies in the region. Uh, talk about what you see China doing and how they complicate the picture, probably not only here, in Pakistan particularly, China's everywhere. My gosh, you know, the last time I talked to Pakistani officials, China's got investments everywhere and they're, they're in, injecting themselves into culture and everything. China is a wild card in this region, in a region that used to not have Chinese influence. Isn't that right? That's exa exactly right. I mean, the Chinese really were, were a non-player, a non-entity until recently. And uh, the Chinese are, are, are back in in a big way. I mean, we're pivoting out of the Middle East. Right. They're pivoting into the Middle East because they understand that the Middle East still remains a critical strategic area um, economically, strategically, in terms of national security. And so they've come in in a big way. They've, they've signed a $400 billion deal with Iran wow. uh, to develop to energy infrastructure, to buy Iranian oil, uh, and to extend what's called One Belt, One Road, which is their sort of global right. vision right, of a um, telecommunications network, land bridges. Uh, maritime waterways, and uh, and part of building this one bridge, one road, is to sink their teeth into the Middle East, into places like Iran, and uh, essentially use their economic and political influence to get the Iranians under their thumb. So $400 billion deal, you know, at the end of the day, it's a deal that we could stop. Those transactions wouldn't happen if we had an administration serious about enforcing sanctions against Chinese banks and That's Chinese right. energy companies which is why actually that deal didn't get done under Trump, and Chinese banks were not processing financial transactions. And the Chinese were buying less than 100,000 barrels a day of, of Iranian oil, 
Uh, now they're up to 800,000 under Biden. So, you know, creating a cash flow. It really, it really matters in terms yeah. of U.S. posture and U.S. presence uh, and our ability to use and willingness to use instruments of American power against our adversaries. Uh, and not just ne- necessarily military power, but, but economic and financial power, where we still have enormous leverage for now. It's such a great point to make that uh, it, literally in three months, the economic dynamics of the region have taken advantage of the Biden administration's easing. And China is a great example, as you mentioned, with the barrels of oil. When I talk to over the last five years, I've had the, the pleasure to talk to a lot of the Middle East uh, diplomatic corps, and they're all and a lot of them been here a long time. They, they've been through many different iterations of Middle East peace and Iranian aggression and war. And the one episode that I did not appreciate until I, I, I heard from them is that in the Middle East, there is a learned lesson, they say, from what we did in Ukraine. We asked the Ukrainians to give up their old Soviet weapons. And then when Russia tried to invade Crimea, the U.S. really wasn't able to muster the sort of response that would protect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And I didn't appreciate this, but so many of the Middle East ambassadors and diplomatic corps and some of their intelligence people say, listen, there's a learning lesson here. Uh, uh, We saw the United States say India can have weapons and Pakistan can't. Well, Pakistan got them. And then we took the, you know, the U.S. asked the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear arsenal. And then within five or 10 years, there's already a, a territorial breach that the U.S. couldn't repel. Does the Middle East interpret our sort of actions, particularly during the Obama years, to be points of a lack of trust on, on take us, we'll take, we're going to take good care of you long term. Don't worry about it. Is that promise, that gold card promise, waning a little bit in the Middle East? Oh, I, I think it's waning considerably. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, our allies in the Middle East, like our allies all around the world, right, when, if they know the United States has their back, um, it, creates, it creates deterrence against their enemies and our and our enemies, right? The one thing you know have to know about the Islamic Republic and Iran, like all, you know, uh, dictatorships in history, is that they push forward when they sense American weakness, right? and they um, and they back up when they feel American steel. And so, when they sense American weakness, uh, that lack of resolve, they push forward against our allies and they push forward against us. And our allies are going to have to respond in some way. Now, the Israelis are responding. And the way the Israelis have always responded, which is, you know what? No American soldier will ever fight and die defending us, right? Right, And they've created uh, a potent defense force, an air force, an intelligence community, and they fought all their wars, right? No American soldiers ever died in an Israeli war. Um, The Israelis will fight their own wars. We don't have too many allies like that around the world, John, unfortunately. Right. We have have a lot of allies who are not capable of fighting their own wars for for lots of reasons. I mean, have depended on the United States, but there they depend on the power of American deterrence, the, the fact that America is forward-leaning, that we have troops around the world, and that we're sending a message to our, ally, to our allies and our adversaries that American power is potent and don't mess with America. And that has you know, been very successful in, in keeping the peace in some of these very volatile regions. Well, when America, when America pulls out, uh, when America no longer has forward presence, then these countries are going to have to make their own decisions. And what are they going to do? Well, some of them may develop their own capability, their own right. military capability, their own nuclear weapons capability. That could be a good thing or a really bad thing, as we've talked about. Some of them are going to look for great power protection from someone else. And that's where the Chinese and Russians are, are rolling into the yeah, Middle East. They're making they, that you know, bet, aren't they? America doesn't have your back. We have your back. Yeah. yeah that's a very powerful 
Uh, uh, dynamic that's playing out. And most Americans are truly oblivious for many reasons, one of them being that the news media really hasn't covered the region honestly in about 10 years, either because there's a lack of uh, ground intelligence and reporting as, as reporting shrinks or because there's ideology differences. But uh, I want to take you to one uh, event that uh, last year uh, I think really shows some of the problems that the media contributes to our lack of understanding of these dynamics. Last year, if I remember correctly, when the original reports came out, John Ratcliffe came out and said Iran was meddling in our elections. A lot of the media impugned, knocked that down. I think you know, famous reporters, Natalia Bershaw and others, knocked it down. And then we, you know, the Biden people come and say, oh, no, that was right. That was true. They issued the report. Is there been a problem with American media not calling balls and strikes neutrally and honestly in the Middle East, uh, maybe, you know, going back to the, the end of the Obama administration through the Trump years? Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks in the media are not calling balls and strikes when it comes to Iran. And I, I think part of the reason is that the Iran nuclear deal was uh, was Obama's nuclear deal. Right. I mean, it was, it, it was his only, quote-unquote, foreign policy achievement um, for, for, for him and for many people. And, they, and they, are, they want to defend it. They want to defend it against all evidence that it is fatally flawed and, and that it is failing. Um, and as a result, the whole debate over the Iran nuclear deal and now the debate over the nuclear negotiations in Vienna has become highly partisan, right. um, highly polarized. And uh, you've got a lot of folks who are agenda-driven in the media um, who are out there not reporting the facts but are, are defending the Obama nuclear deal mm. and, uh, and obviously are, are deeply critical of the fact that, that President Trump withdrew from it. So, you know, again, there, there's, a, there's an argument, John. I, I, I think there's an, an argument to be made. You know, why, why should you go back in the deal? What are the benefits of the deal? Right. What are some of the flaws of the deal? You can have a, an intelligent argument. And I think there's some very well-intentioned people who want to go back into this nuclear I deal. I agree. Yeah, who there's no doubt. Who are clear-eyed about the Islamic Republic and right. what a threat it represents to the region and to America. Uh, and then there are people in, in another camp who are... Um, who are ideologues and who are truly um, who are defenders of the regime in Iran and who believe that uh, you know America should be partnering with Iran uh, and throwing Israel and our other allies under the bus. And those are people who are not willing to, to look at the facts, the evidence, and, and unfortunately some of them are in journalism. Yeah, there's no doubt. I've seen some really egregious cases. And I think uh, Glenn Greenwald, who you know, does, he did great work at The Intercept and now does great work at his... Substack had a really devastating analysis of one reporter's today, but it's really an indictment of all journalism. You could pick a lot of reporters and their avatars to a larger problem uh, in journalism, and I think that really strikes me. I want to wrap up with one last question. It's kind of been a newsy thing in the last week. John Kerry, climate czar, extracurricular diplomacy, uh, maybe tipping off the Iranians to some Israeli activities. What do you assess that? Do you think John Kerry acted badly? Should we believe these things? What did you make of the Iranian ambassador's off-the-cuff remarks yesterday that you know had some barbs and some acknowledgments? Um, uh, should we be worried as Americans what John Kerry did, or is it a big kerfuffle about nothing? Oh, I, I think it could be a big deal. I mean, here, here's a quick backstory: is that the Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, who was the lead negotiator uh, with Kerry in 2015 for the nuclear deal, was being uh, taped in an audio history, and he was talking about a range of issues. And in that audio tape, yeah. he said that John Kerry told him that the Israeli Air Force had struck Iranian-backed positions in Syria over 200 times, and quote-unquote, I was shocked. Okay, so either 
either. Javad Zarif is a liar. Right. Um, or John Kerry is a liar. Um, when, he de- when he came out on Twitter and denied it and claims that, uh, no, no, all that information was out in public. It was in the New York Times, and he, all he was doing was repeating what was already public. Well, if it was already public, then why was Javad Zarif shocked? Yeah. Now, Javad Zarif is a mendacious fellow. Right. Uh, he is a master of deception. He, he lies like the rest of us breathe. By the way, that's something we've been warning the Obama administration and now the Biden administration yeah. about for years, is this guy is a liar, and he, and he is not a moderate, and he's not reform-minded, and he doesn't re- represent the you know, smiling reform face of this brutal regime, because he is a revolutionary. And he and the supreme leader of Iran have worked hand-in-glove in a good cop-bad cop routine to deceive our diplomats into negotiating deeply flawed deals. So either Javad Zarif is a liar or John Kerry is a liar. Either way, this administration is yeah, explaining It's today. bad for us because we're either negotiating with a liar or we are negotiating with a, 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 a liar. And uh, it does show the conundrum that Iran has presented early in this Biden administration. Um, where do you think this ends up? Last question. I know you got to go, and but I'm so grateful for your time. Mark, where do you think this ultimately ends up? Will we be back in the JCPOA in the next 12 to 15 months? Do you think there's a very different JCPOA? Or uh, can there be a status quo of just a lot of talking and not much re- resolve, uh, resolved in the, in the area? No, I think Biden administration negotiators are going to collapse at the negotiating table in Vienna. They're going to give Iran almost everything Iran wants. Uh, we'll be back in the JCPOA. And then there'll be a kabuki dance about a new, longer, stronger, broader deal that at the end of the day will never arrive unless the Biden administration is prepared to literally give up everything to the Iranians in exchange for this new, quote-unquote, longer, stronger deal. Yeah. Uh, my only hope is that given Republican determination, given uh, Israeli and Gulf determination, that the hundreds of thousands of CEOs and chief legal officers around the world don't go back into Iran because of the huge market uncertainty. That's a key thing, isn't it? And absolutely. We got to keep, John, we got to keep those tens and hundreds of billions of dollars out of the coffers of the regime yeah. so that it doesn't have the money for regional havoc, internal repression building its nuclear weapons. There's an amazing contrast because a lot of the companies right now are making statements about the democracy in Georgia and, and weighing in there. But Iran's no Georgia. It's a lot worse. And uh, what signal would they send if they would shun Georgia and then embrace Iran? It, it, uh, there's some interesting moments ahead for the American public to view our, our corporate leaders, our political leaders, our foreign leaders. Um, really remarkable times, and so glad you can make sense of it this way, Mark. You're, when, when I talked to I, uh, over the years with the Washington Times, wherever you've always been able to make sense of very hard, th- uh, difficult things to grasp for folks. I'm really, really grateful for that. Oh, thank you, John. I really appreciate being on this podcast, and uh, look forward to future conversations. All right, it's a deal. We're definitely going to have you back. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting all of our great advertisers. You know them all. Birch Gold and Kansas City Stakes and uh, Ancestry.com and so many, many more. Bambi, we've got so many great ones, new ones coming on every day. I'm going to mention a couple tomorrow in my week, and ra- week roundup. One way you can further our journalism is to tell those advertisers, those sponsors, you love them. If you find a service or product they have, buy it. Help them because they have the courage to support us. And when you buy their products, you're supporting us. Most ways, if you buy it by using one of our special codes you hear on this podcast, you're getting a great discount, free shipping, 10, 15% off a product. Great people, great opportunities, great supporters of real journalism. I can't thank you enough for doing so. God bless you. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, if you need a news fix, go to justinews.com. Otherwise, we'll be back tomorrow with a full slate of guests and some scoopy reporting we hope. Take care.